2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. kind of doesn't matter what kind of person you are, Luddite or early adopter, leftist or arch-conservative, Zoomer or boomer, most people agree that something has gone wrong with the Internet. In a new book, tech worker and author Ben Tarnoff argues that underneath all these different complaints about tech and cable companies, there's one underlying problem. The Internet, born in public hands and initially tuned for public use, became privatized through the 1990s. Tarnoff argues that the problem is governing our networks for profit. But if turning the Internet over to Comcast and Google happened quickly and without much opposition, deprivatizing it and creating new public alternatives is a whole other kind of task. We'll talk with them coming up next after this news. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. If anywhere can be seen as the birthplace of the Internet, it's probably the section of 101 that snakes down from San Francisco to San Jose. Many of the ideas and organizations and components of the early Internet are located along 101. And as described by Ben Tarnoff in his new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, it was also the site of the most important test of Internet working, which took place in part from a delivery truck rolling down the highway on November 22nd, 1977. But as the internet grew up, it was transformed not only by technological advances, but the neoliberalism that defined its crucial years of growth. 45 years on, the internet is less a network of networks and more a collection of corporations. And here to talk about how we got from that van to today, we're joined by Ben Tarnoff. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, Alexis. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. You know, I, I love the history that you compress into this book. And let's talk about what the internet is and where it came from. So tell me about the van. Let's start there. What was it doing? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Alexis, in 1977,
3: there was this crucial experiment that really you know, verified that the internet could work. You had a van driving down the 101 California freeway that we all know, sending packets of data through the air, through a radio transmitter, essentially, that got picked up by a nearby repeater got moved into a fixed line network, so copper wires, transmitted across the country to the East Coast of the United States, bounced up by satellite over the Atlantic, over to the UK, and then back to trace its steps all the way back to the van. And what this proved is that this new protocol, which is a set of rules for how computers should communicate, this new protocol could stitch together all of these different networks, all of these different mediums, and transmit a packet of data perfectly.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because of course now we do we engage in this kind of internetworking so often that we maybe have lost some of our wonder about how difficult this was to build.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it was difficult enough to achieve computer networking, getting different computers to speak to one another. But the innovation of the internet is inter-networking, which is where the name comes from, getting a network of networks to be stitched together. And if you think about these individual networks, you can think of them as speaking different dialects. So what you had to do was create a kind of digital Esperanto that would make it possible for all of these different dialects to come together and interconnect. Mm.
2: And uh, how'd they do that?
3: So the idea of the Internet Protocol, which, again, was created first in the mid-1970s, but then, of course, later expanded and refined over the years, was to create a set of rules that were at once flexible enough to accommodate all of the different ways that data could be transmitted, right? You could transmit it through the air, you could transmit it through fixed line, via satellite, but robust enough to ensure that data would remain intact, that the data would get
2: to where it was going. So, you know, one of the crucial ideas in your book is that, you know, the, the Internet as it was built during that time was this very specific incarnation of different networking ideas that were that were floating around. So how was it different from what, say, AT&T or, or whichever uh, company would have created? Like, how did its public nature, the fact that it was being funded by the U.S. government, influence its actual architecture?
3: Well, the creation of the Internet Protocol is funded by DARPA, which is the Pentagon's R&D arm. And at that point, DARPA was investing heavily in computer networking. Actually, by the end of the 1960s, they built something called ARPANET, which was this pioneering computer network which tied computers together from all across the country into a single network. And it used a revolutionary technology called packet switching, which is, in fact, a technology that underlies the modern Internet. Now, what was so revolutionary about packet switching is that a packet of data didn't need to know its destination in advance. It essentially asked for directions every hop that it took, every step along the way. And this was a completely new way to route data and was kind of the antithesis of what the big telephone networks like AT&T were doing, whereas a much more centralized hierarchical model of how information
2: should flow through a system. And so do you think that that wouldn't have developed outside of the, the public nature of this project?
3: Well, the crucial thing about the public management that DARPA provided here as a Pentagon entity is that the Internet protocol, as it developed, and as the whole suite of Internet protocols continue to develop, because the Internet is really the first in a whole series of protocols within the expanded Internet protocol suite, The crucial thing about public management is that it ensured that these protocols would be free, would be open and non-proprietary. The point was not to lock users into a walled garden, you know, of the kind that we're familiar with today, but rather to give people a free tool that could let them interconnect as many networks as possible. And public management made that possible.
2: We're talking about the ways in which the Internet is broken. How It Might Be Fixed with Ben Tarnoff. He has a new book, Internet for the People to Fight for Our Digital Futures, one of the founding editors of Logic, magazine about technology. We also want to hear from you. What about the Internet does not work for you? And in particular, I'm interested in this early part of the show. Did you work on the early Internet? And what did you hope it would be or or become? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. It's KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions, stories, experiences to forum at kqed.org. So we've been talking about the this early period in which... DARPA was backing this new technology, this new kind of suite of technologies that we're talking about. But it started to expand, right? The National Science Foundation gets involved, big universities gets involved, but it kind of stays in this kind of more public realm. Talk to me a little bit about the, the moment when the internet begins to grow and its sort of publicness gets challenged. So by the early
3: 1990s, the internet has grown to become a network primarily for academic researchers. And at this point, it's under the leadership of the National Science Foundation, which is a federal agency tasked with supporting basic research throughout the country. So by this point, the ownership of the internet remains under federal control, but it's civilianized. It's no longer uh, under the control of the Pentagon. But a problem develops in the early 1990s, which is that a number of people who don't have access to the internet want access to the internet. It becomes increasingly popular. The World Wide Web appears, graphical web browsers appear, you know, before you weren't able to actually point and click around the web. Now you could. So the National Science Foundation has a kind of crisis and they they decide that in order to expand the availability of the internet they are going to want to turn it over to the private sector sooner than expected. Now, they had planned to privatize the internet from the beginning. The federal government had no intention of running the network indefinitely. But they're forced to move up the timetable because of this outsized demand of people to get online.
2: So how does it actually happen? I mean, how do you hand over this public network into private hands? So the crucial date here is... April, 1995. And at this point, the
3: National Science Foundation, which up until that point, ran the core artery of the internet, what's known as a backbone, which was called NSFnet, decides to terminate the NSFnet. And at that point, the private sector takes over. So the crucial thing to understand about this step is that it's not a simple transfer of public assets to the private sector. In fact, the public sector is shutting down its backbone. But the federal government was in a position to dictate the terms of the transition. And what it decides to do is to essentially ask for no conditions, no compensation, and no real oversight over how the network would develop. So it's a particularly extreme and comprehensive form of privatization that, in my view, really lays the foundation for the future crises of
2: the internet that we know today. Well, and we know that the book isn't just about the privatization of the pipes right it's not just uh, about privatization of what sometimes people now call broadband or the or the components sort of deeper into the network it's all it's about what happens sort of up and down the technological stack and what that's meant for our society and you know i mean it seems like the book wants to show that privatization is really the uniting factor in all the disparate problems that people have identified in our current internet
3: That's correct. For me, privatization is the root of the various crises that plague the modern internet. And it lets us tell a comprehensive story of how the internet is broken. Because we see the effects of privatization at the bottom of the stack in terms of the pipes, the so-called physical infrastructure of the internet. And specifically, the consequences of that have been severe inequalities of broadband access, to the point that there's really an acute social crisis in the United States around connectivity, but as privatization moves up the stack over the course of the latter half of the 1990s and into the 2000s with the creation of the so-called platforms, privatization comes to engender a whole host of harms, many of which are now at the center of our public conversation. Yeah.
2: So why do you think a privatized internet sort of precludes what, in your book you say, you know, precludes meaningful democracy?
3: Well, what is privatization when we talk about the internet? Privatization, as I mentioned before, was not an event. It was not a simple handover of public assets. It was a process. It was a process that took many years. And it was a process that programmed the profit motive into every layer of the network. Now, the problem with that is that an internet that is owned by private firms and organized around the principle of profit maximization is one in which people can't participate in the decisions that affect them. And further, they often can't get the resources they need to lead self-determined lives. We could bring that down to earth a bit and talk at the bottom of the stack first about the so-called pipes. I mentioned that the privatization of the pipes was particularly extreme. It happened with no conditions, with no compensation, with no real oversight. And there are a series of moves Uh, in the latter half of the 90s and early 2000s, that further consolidated the control of the broadband giants over the pipes. And what is the state today? I mean, how have things shaken out? When Microsoft researchers looked at this issue in 2018, they found 162 million Americans do not access
2: the internet broadband speeds. Yeah, it basically, right, it it didn't work as intended, even for, you know, on its own terms of providing uh, broadband access at relatively low cost based on the sort of principles of competition that people are familiar with. Uh, We're talking about the ways in which the internet is broken, how it might be fixed with Ben Tarnoff, He's got a new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, and we would love to hear from you. Did you work on the early internet? What did you hope it would be? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about this broken Internet. (laughs) Our guest today is Ben Tarnoff. He's got a new book, Internet for the People, the Fight for our Digital Futures. Also one of the founding editors of Logic, a very, very good magazine about technology. Ben, before the break, we were talking about the privatization of the Internet in the 1990s and then the sort of way that the, the big broadband giants that very few people Uh, Very few corporations uh, provide Internet access to most Americans and how that hasn't worked uh, all that well. And you provide an alternative or you kind of suggest an alternative based on what's the research in your book on community networks being a meaningful alternative to the way that uh, Internet access currently works. Can you tell us a little bit about those? So there are
3: currently more than 900 community networks all across the country. And these are networks that are either publicly owned, for instance, by a municipality, or cooperatively owned by the users themselves. And data has shown that community networks tend to provide better service to their communities at lower cost than the big broadband giants like Comcast and AT&T. And the reason is fairly straightforward. If you think about a company like Comcast, they're spending billions of dollars on share buybacks. They're spending multi-millions of dollars on executive pay packages. And that means that they're failing to invest in the infrastructure. Community networks, by contrast, can make real investments in connectivity and further can empower community members to participate in the decisions around how that infrastructure is
2: going to be deployed. Yeah. I mean, so I've been out to one of the examples that you use in the book is Chattanooga, Tennessee, which has uh, had, had one of the earliest um, sort of fiber to home setups. Uh, and so that meant people had like gigabit internet speeds at, at pretty reasonable prices. And, you know, one of the things is Chattanooga is kind of like everywhere else, though, still. You know, I mean, if you drive around Tennessee, it's not like you go into Chattanooga and you're like, this is a wonderland. So, how important do you think this level of the infrastructure really is and kind of structuring everyday life for people or changing the possibilities for people? Well, I think it's very important. And I think we have to think about, you know, what is
3: the importance of an internet connection at the end of the day? You know, as I think we saw through the COVID pandemic, an internet connection and a high quality, high speed internet connection is a basic precondition for participation in social, economic, civic life in the United States. I mean, one of the tragic things we saw, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, was how many Americans couldn't access the internet from home. They couldn't apply for unemployment insurance. Kids couldn't attend classes online. They had to flock to the parking lots of churches and other community organizations that were putting out Wi-Fi networks. So I, I think we're starting to understand in this country the depth of the social crisis around connectivity. And this is a crisis that community networks can
2: really help solve for us. You know, uh, we've got a caller, uh, Peter, in San Francisco, who may have may have something around this. Peter, welcome to the show.
5: Yes, hi. It's Peter Warfield from Library Users Association. And we've been very concerned about how this affects libraries, but also the wider world that you're talking about. Very, very, uh, and, and I appreciate very much your having this. At a library, what a, the larger concern is this, that the Internet, which was kind of viewed as an add-on and a bonus is now more and more becoming a replacement rather than an add-on, a replacement for real live uh, service from actual people in an office or people on a phone where you could call up an agency, let's say a government agency or a a private business, and ask a question and uh, then get a human being to answer it for you. Instead, it's becoming, oh, there's nobody in the office, the office is closed, and, and if it's a phone, uh we're not in the office. If you have a question, send us an email. And all of a sudden, you're faced with the need for this technology, for the connections, for the know-how, and the puzzle palace that is whatever the agency has put up. At the library, for example, more and more books are becoming e-books and sometimes replacing actual books. Programs are more and more virtual. And yes, they enable access to those with access during COVID, but They don't enable access for people with, let's say, a telephone, and the library hasn't even bothered to tell people that they can get access from the telephone. Uh, Programs where you used to just walk in now require registration uh, and an email and all that technology to even know how to connect with it. Uh, And so there's this huge withdrawal of former services from government and private agencies that used to be available. You walked into headquarters and, and dealt with yeah. somebody or on the phone and so on. And that's now becoming replaced with the puzzle palace and the technology barriers to access that w- most impact the vulnerable populations, yeah. minorities, poorer people, older people, uh, disabled people and so
2: on. Peter, Let me throw this uh, over to Ben. Um, Ben, I feel like you know there's this general question of the role of the internet in in civic life that that Peter's bringing to the fore. Yeah, I think it's an important question,
3: Peter, and and in the role of libraries in particular. I think we need to spend a little bit of time on because mm-hmm. the, the the defunding of our public libraries and and the. The idea that there should be a public resource for information, a non-commercial resource in which trained professionals like librarians are available to help classify, curate, and contextualize information, this is what we sorely need in our highly commercialized media sphere, and in particular, a digital sphere. If you think about the problems with social media, for instance, much of it is the proliferation of highly decontextualized information in which a company like Facebook has an incentive to favor sensationalistic and provocative content with some serious downstream political consequences, as we've seen. This is a place where libraries and people trained in the library of sciences have an important role to play in improving the quality of our information communities.
2: Yeah. Well, and you actually see a role for libraries in this kind of future non-commercial internet or a future you know, public option for the internet, too. That's
3: right. I quote the programmer Darius Kazemi, who has this thought experiment about what if we put a social media server in every public library in the country and then federated them together into a network using a project like Mastodon, which is an open source alternative to the big corporate social media giants like Facebook. And I think libraries provide an interesting entry point for thinking about piggybacking on public infrastructure to build out some of these alternative communities, but also using the skills that already exist by people like librarians
2: and applying them to the digital realm.
4: Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, this was this Mastodon experiment that Darius Kazemi um, kind of conceptualized. It's sort of one of the different ways that you might counter the privatization that's further up the stack. We've been talking about the pipes uh, primarily, you know, how people access the Internet. But this book tries to kind of tie together both pipes and what you and I agree uh, is is a bad name for these large Internet companies, the platforms. That's right
3: that's right because we have to understand privatization as not simply stopping with the pipes of course not simply with comcast and at&t and verizon but as continuing up the stack and this is a story that unfolds really after 1995 Its first chapter is the explosion of the dot-com boom, which is initiated with Netscape's explosive IPO. If folks remember Netscape, the first popular graphical web browser, and its endpoint is the creation of these empires of the internet, which we think of today as platforms like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the rest. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, we've got a um, commenter, uh, listener Todd, writes in to say, I was hired by Sinet right after they went public in 1995. It was an early commercial ISP. T1 lined for $8,000 per month, $1,000 per network port switch on a Cisco switch. AOL was the joke in the closed garden offering, pushing CDs as junk mail at the time. I was excited and naive about the potential positive for connecting people together. A healthy rotation of rising and falling companies pushed forward through the 90s and 2000s until anything new ground to a halt. By 2010, Facebook and the walled garden monopolies won out and Google was perfecting the AI-driven ad network. And we've been living the negative consequences since in the real world. Hate-driven AI networks selling political-targeted ads to domestic and foreign governments. And Todd writes, still hacking on Linux machines 28 years later. You know, Todd raises a couple of, of interesting points. I mean, when we hear about the what went wrong with the Internet, One of the crucial critiques now is, as Todd kind of indicates, that it's the monopolies. It's that we only have these large companies that have taken up the various spaces of of providing services on the Internet, whether that's, you know, your Amazon over here or your Alphabet over there. um... So how would you respond to the idea that that what really needs to happen isn't, you know, some creation of a a more public Internet or a deprivatization of the Internet, but instead... Uh, anti-monopoly action?
3: Well, anti-monopoly, as you know, Alexis, is having a moment right now. I mean, the Biden administration has been particularly keen on it. There are a couple of big tech antitrust bills in the Senate right now that have been voted out of committee. You know, my position is I have sympathy and a lot of critical support for anti-monopoly. I think it's important. I think the anti-monopoly toolkit gives us a number of measures through which we can curb the power and shrink the footprint of these big tech enclosures, which is absolutely important. I part ways with the anti-monopoly folks when it comes to the diagnosis of the problem. I don't think that the problem with the internet is the fact that markets are insufficiently competitive. I think the problem is the market itself. And if you think about a company like Facebook, we were just talking about how the business model of Facebook incentivizes it to maximize user engagement in such a way that it privileges provocative and sensationalistic content and often untrue information as as we all know. That business model came out of a period of competition when it was trying to grab market share. So I think the idea that simply adding more competition to the markets of the Internet would automatically
2: generate better social outcomes remains to be seen. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, at at that time I was like deeply involved in doing a lot of digital media and it was pretty clear that from talking with people at Facebook that they were worried that Twitter had become the, the news source and so they wanted more news on Facebook. And thus began, you know, an 11-year-long journey that we're now on where Facebook uh, has had so many different positions vis-a-vis journalism and the news industry, many of which have been destructive to, you know, individual journalists as well as uh, the, the industry as a whole. Uh, I wanted to bring in um, Julian from uh, Vallejo. Welcome, Julian.
6: Hello, uh, Julian Phillips here in Vallejo. How are you guys doing? I love your radio station. Listen all the time.
2: Oh, thanks for calling.
6: Sure, sure. Uh, uh if you want me to toss out my my question?
2: Yeah, sure. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, yeah, sounds like a great uh great little bit of work on your your book. Um I write science fiction novels. I'm a retired uh, newspaper editor out of San Luis Obispo and i had followed I made 64 now uh, all the way through I mean Atari 512s and Commodore computers and Brazer family and so on. So in my science fiction books, which you can find online, we're doing a podcast, I'm projecting out like 60, 80 years, even 100 years into Western future and Internet. In the 90s, I worked for a a group called the Orion Institute real, real quickly. And they had an investor in computers in the 90s who was working on something called the Student World Assembly, if you ever heard of it. And the idea was that uh, university students all over the world would uh, uh, have an opportunity via the Internet to do non-binding uh, kind of NGO, uh, non-government organization, ref- reference votes on things like uh, you know, the war in Ukraine or something. And so you'd have like a billion people voting on like non-binding, but the, the numbers would be huge. And then you look at like things like e-Mongolia, which was on BBC recently. So mm-hmm. the question would would go to like, uh, with the government going more and more and more. Do you see a point at which we do national elections mm-hmm. online? You see a point at which, I mean, we're already doing DMB and our IRS online. And I happen to be uh, disabled with uh, low vision, uh, yeah. almost no vision at this point in my life. And I'll tell you, you
2: can't operate these things without, your, without good eyesight. Yeah. So I'll take my answer off the air if you want. Hey, thanks, Julian. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the, the crucial context here, right, is our, our actual democracy, the one that's playing out uh, in the United States, is getting less and less representative as time goes on. You know, California votes. Uh, not worth very much relative to some other states, uh, uh, among other problems with our current electoral system. Uh, how, do you, how do you see this, Ben? I mean, for you, I know that democracy and is it, a pretty— you have a very full conception of democracy that you lay out in your book.
3: Yeah, so in the book, I talk about democracy as being, you know, basically the Greek root of the word, which is the capacity of the people to rule themselves— And for people to rule themselves, I argue, they need access to the resources that enables them to lead self-determined lives and the opportunity to participate in the decisions that most affect them. You know, I think that latter point about what spaces in which decision-making should take place, you know, there's been a lot of experiments over the years with online forms of decision-making, you know, trying to uh, determine what an organization should do by taking a poll online or bringing people together through different kinds of platforms and i think there's there's a there's a role for those types of experiments but to my mind and this might be a bit old school democratic decision making and deliberation really best happens in in in-person contexts so in the book i look for ways in which we could embed face-to-face democratic deliberation into the governance of the internet
2: Hmm.
3: Like, talk to us more about that. So to go back to community networks, which we were talking about before, Alexis, one of the things that I like about community networks is not just that they can provide better service for lower cost than a firm like Comcast. It's also that they can create face-to-face spaces of democratic deliberation where users can come together and determine through a democratic process how they want their infrastructure to be deployed. To give you an example, there are so-called rural electric cooperatives all across the country that have started to provide broadband service to their members. Many of these organizations were started back in the New Deal era when FDR seeded them with federal money so that they could provide electricity to rural residents. Now they're providing broadband. And these are democratic organizations. They hold a vote for the board. They have community meetings. And these are spaces in which ordinary people can come together and make decisions that relate to one of the most essential infrastructures of their lives.
2: We're talking about fixing the Internet. Did you know it was broken? Our guest is Ben Tarnoff. He has a new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, which he argues that. Privatization is sort of at the at the core of the many-headed problems of the Internet. Uh, Tarnoff is founding editor of Logic, a magazine about technology. And we want to hear from you. What about the Internet does not work for you? What do you think about the idea that the Internet needs to be deprivatized? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Eight, six. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Uh, got some listener memories. Uh, one listener writes in to say, I remember that moment when email became really popular. It was such a revelation. The ability to speak in near real time to a friend across the world was so fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And then came spam and electronic junk mail and ad promotions. And suddenly this pure tool became such a hassle. Now my email is such an albatross around my neck. Before we go to the break, Ben, do you remember your first email address? Do you remember what it was?
3: Oh, my goodness. I think I must have piggybacked on my parents' email address. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what it was because I don't want to uh, divulge any personal information yeah, of theirs. Fair enough. Their,
2: their AOL account. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It was an AOL account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine was with an internet service provider called Pacifier in rural Washington state. And my email address was Actually, you know what? I don't want to tell you guys my email address either. I can't believe I was about to reveal it. (laughs) Um, Nonetheless, that moment of email in those early days of Usenet, there's a a way in which you can have too much nostalgia for those times, and yet it does seem like part of the reason that people think kindly about those times is that it wasn't as commercial uh, as as things are now. Um, One last uh, comment before we go to the break. Dave writes, I would be glad to pay a tenth of a penny for every email, text, and phone uh, call over the Internet. Would that help reduce scams and spam? What is wrong with such a plan? Thanks for that comment, Dave. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Ben Tarnoff. He's got a new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Uh, Got some other beefy listener uh, comments here. Uh, Andy writes in to say, it seems like the internet is the postal service of the 21st century and just like the post office in Ben Franklin's time people needed it to communicate and to participate in commerce across longer distances just like the post office it's a nationwide societal good to provide access to every address in America to every address in America even if many of those addresses are not actually profitable for the postal service. To me, it sounds like the U.S. Post Office should provide a baseline broadband Internet connection to every address in the nation, perhaps for a small fee. Just like with the current Postal Service, individuals and businesses could pay more to get a higher degree of service from a private provider. Is there any chance of that actually happening? Two questions out of that for you, uh, Ben. One is, people clearly get excited. Some people get excited about the idea of a public option for the Internet. But the second question is... How would that work? Is it the post office? And, and how have you tried to, to think about the different experiments that could be run uh, to, to build that public option?
3: Well, I agree that a public option for the internet is an important thing to consider. I'm somewhat agnostic on the question of whether it's the post office to provide it, whether it's municipalities, whether it's cooperatives. I think the reality is we're gonna need an ecosystem of different alternative ownership models. Obviously the post office can do things at a national level that a municipality can't, and the one problem with privileging community networks over any other kind of intervention is that they are community-based, they are local, and there are certain downsides to remaining at the local level. Certain localities have vastly more resources than others. So if we want to guarantee a universal standard of connectivity as a basic social right, we are going to have to think about interventions at a regional, at a national level, and the post office could play an important role there.
2: You know, I want, wanted to follow up on this baseline, the idea of baseline level of connectivity, because one of the things that's great in your book is you showed that the way that the U.S. The US government knows this is a problem, uh, legislators know this is a problem. How have they tried to fix it? So the preferred
3: solution, or let's say attempted solution among policymakers for the connectivity crisis is to give billions of dollars in subsidies to the companies that created that crisis in the first place. So the broadband giants like Comcast and others are getting paid by various federal, state, and local initiatives to build out more broadband infrastructure. Now the problem with this approach, as you might expect if you know anything about these companies, is that they often pocket the money and fail to deliver. Yeah, and and they're having you know we just keep trying the same thing over and over again. It turns out to be quite lucrative for the crisis to persist because then you can get paid to try to solve it and in fact not solve it so that it can persist so you can get paid again.
2: Um, Pam's got a really good question for you here, listener Pam. Um, She writes, I've long thought that the problems of the internet are due to its privatization. It's pretty astounding that the government essentially just gave what should be our internet over to private interest for free. This Pam, this book is for you, seriously. Uh, But as with most potential public goods, people worry about what it would cost for them to be be provided to the public. Does Ben Tarnoff have any estimates for how much it would cost to provide a free public internet? It seems to me it's probably cheaper than we'd think.
3: Well, Pam, that's actually a great question that's a transition from the piece that we were just speaking about, which is if you calculate the tens of billions of dollars that we're providing to the big telecoms to so-called solve the connectivity crisis, which they're not solving, we could take all of that money and direct it to existing community networks. We could also use that money to seed new community networks, and those networks would provide a much higher level of service for much lower cost than the Comcast of the world. Now, would it be free? I'm not sure. I think you know we could we could imagine a world in which we're pushing that service to the lowest possible point and also ensuring that the people who truly can't pay have access to it. I
2: think that, to me, would be the priority. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in Omar from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Omar. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for calling. Okay. Oh man, I listen to you all the time. NPR
7: in general. <laughs> uh, I believe it's the one true bastion of honest news out there. Um, so I, I have been around in the city, in the Bay Area for a very, very long time. I've watched the the upcoming of the internet and I have seen, first of all, that DARPA is a defense appropriations company. Um, everything they do, They do with an ulterior motive and if you read into their uh mission statement for the company it says exactly that um darpa created the internet but not with our interest in mind but more the interest of kind of monitoring the world um then along comes google which is not google but it's government operation on gathering information everywhere Um, and then you've got facebook who finally reveals their true identity by calling themselves Meta or Metadata. Um, and I think the whole thing um, needs to be redone. I think they need to pull the plug on all these large companies, um, especially Zucker Puppet and his, uh, concom- uh, you know, or what do you call it, monopoly on, on uh, social media, which uh, he has totally squandered by allowing uh, it to become a, a bastion of hate and all these bots and everything um i I think that that we're headed down a very dark road Mm -hmm. um i think when we go all digital into our into our elections (laughs) i think that information can be changed digitally digitally at the at the flip of a switch um i don't do digital currencies i don't believe in bitcoin i don't believe in none of that um Yilmaz, hey let I me think uh, internet, hey, let me pull on a couple
2: of the threads that you uh, that you've brought up there. Like, interesting points. Just want to know DARPA is a, a governmental entity, part of the uh, part of the Department of uh, of Defense. But I do think it raises some some interesting questions. Two two things to you, Ben. One, a publicly run internet does seem like it's it is open to the charge that it would be used for spying uh, on on U.S. citizens, uh, and and part two is. You know, the the close ties between the government and the large technology companies have been clear for a lot of years now, uh, both, you know, before the Snowden revelations, but really, uh, for sure, we knew, we had it in the government's own hand that the data that was being generated by private companies was also being used uh, by the government for its own purposes uh, or by the intelligence agencies, really. So how how do you sort of, answer some of the the difficult questions about what it would mean to have a powerful and uh, you know (laughs) us government uh that's running the internet
3: well i think those two questions are connected alexis i mean if we think about using the power of the public sector to democratize the pipes of the internet, whether it means direct public ownership, whether it means subsidies, tax breaks, other incentives, there's always going to be that question of will this facilitate digital authoritarianism? The reality is that the state can do whatever it likes, even when the pipes are private. I mean, the Edward Snowden disclosures showed us that the NSA will tap fiber optic cables of the big ISPs, those ISPs being private is no impediment. When India shuts down the internet in Kashmir, which it often does, the fact that the telecoms are private poses no impediment. So the state always has power over the pipes. The question is, how is it going to use that power? And we've been talking about the postal network. You know, the postal network is actually a case of a publicly owned network that respects the principle of privacy. And this principle of postal privacy, the idea that postal workers will not open your mail and read it, was a principle that was actually in the original bill that created the the U.S. Post Office. It's in the statute. And that has created, I think, like a a tradition that we can point to of a publicly owned network that respects privacy.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's, uh, Sam writes in, With an infrastructure question. Ben, can't wait to read your book. I've been around the quote unquote web a while, from the Netscape days to Microsoft to a couple of IPOs. Privatization made the content and commerce side pretty amazing, moving us beyond CompuServe and AOL with better content, more tools, global reach, and new and innovative use cases. But I am amazed how the infrastructure side has stalled and access, broadband versus the old dial-up, is indeed way too constricted and expensive. I lived in Europe for several years where bandwidth was higher, more ubiquitous, and less expensive. Seems like we need more balance, new ideas, and can't wait to read this book to learn what you have in mind, Ben. Uh question that arises for me out of that is... Could you just have a public internet backbone, but not go up, not deprivatize up the stack, as you, as you would say? Or do you think it needs to really be all the way up the
3: stack? Well, it's an interesting thought experiment. My sense is that if you started to build a deprivatized layer at the pipes, that it would engender enough opposition up the stack that the only way that you could protect those networks at the bottom of the stack is to expand. In other words, offense being the best defense. Now, I I think there's another important point, which is in this question, which is when we talk about deprivatization, which is my vision for building a better internet. It's not simply about turning the clock back. I'm not nostalgic for the internet of 1990 or 1986 or what have you. It's impractical and frankly undesirable to go back to an older internet, a text only internet, an internet that could only be used by academic researchers. I think we have to confront the fact that privatization was a creative process and deprivatization must be no less creative.
2: Let's uh, bring in one last caller. Judy, welcome to the show. Hi. Yes,
1: I just wanted to share that uh, as a young programmer back in 1980, I worked for a company called Timeshare, which operated a private network called TimeNet. And, uh, you know, had a great, great time. Absolutely one of the best jobs I ever had. And... um, we were also got connected to the early DARPA net internet internet uh, back back in those times. So, uh, you know, I could actually uh, write my brother who worked at Motorola, but you had to actually write out the full path name of your email address. <laughs> and that meant if one of the nodes went down then you know it's not going to get to your brother very often and and since at that time there wasn't really good backspacing on
2: computers it was very difficult so we did not use that very often yeah what did you think so we when also, you were oh oh sorry judy can i ask you one ahead. question as a as a young programmer working at that time and working with these networking technologies what did you think the internet would evolve into like a, as a very very early user and someone with obviously a lot of uh, technical skill.
1: You know, I mean, the thing is, is I couldn't even. You know, the idea that it was public would go public is was just that that wasn't even a thing. The thing, it, the internet went public kind of almost without me realizing what had happened hmm. because so so one of the things that we used so you know lots of people who were on the Internet itself, used uh, Unix. And then we, we had something called Re, Read News, Usenet, which was a very, it was like early social media. And, you know, people would always have these things which were completely disallowed, but they'd post something on this, you know, email system, if you will, but it was actually, you know, like I say, it was more like a network. So you had a, all these chains that were like seven branches of topics that you could post under, but then they would, somebody would do this and they would post this thing, make money fast. And that was not allowed because there was no commercialization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea of commercialization wasn't even a a mm-hmm. concept to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the, the what, what really it, Opened me up to the internet. I think a lot, and and I mean the internet before the web mm-hmm. was uh, these guys, who, two guys who wrote this thing called the Internet Bus, and they introduced me to things like Gopher, which was mm-hmm. one kind of the early web. It actually actually competed with HTTP, except apparently
2: they unsuccessfully to charge <laughs>
1: yeah. a whole bunch <laughs> yeah. of money, huh?
2: Yeah, competed unsuccessfully with HTTP. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's
1: so. so- the one thing I wanted to say was is that what was interesting was we would have a, a, a plotter, you know, which is like the, the, this big human-sized printer, and we would print out the nodes in the network, right, in the internet,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? And, I mean, you know, back when there were just a few, I mean, we'd go like, there are a hundred nodes now, right? <laughs> and our backbone was like, I think, 300 baud. We were, like, so excited when it got up to 3,000. <laughs>
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, Judy, thank you so much for these uh, reflections. And uh, I appreciate just, you know, your your enthusiasm and all all the knowledge you brought to the show today. Um, Ben, do you want to comment on sort of that era? Or I have I have a couple of other uh, listener uh, comments to throw at you, too. Oh, sure. Let's go ahead with the comments. Yeah. So, um, you know, on the the realm of experimentation, you know, John writes, the city of Santa Clara in the center of Silicon Valley has fiber distributed through much of the city, but it only allows businesses on the broadband network. We have protested that residences should have access to the tax funded network, but the city resists. Any suggestions? Or I would say this is maybe uh, an an omen of what might be coming if this kind of uh, approach takes off. Well, this is actually a common
3: problem across the country. You know, you have a lot of these municipal networks, these, uh, you know, in many cases, these middle mile networks, uh, which could extend to the last mile, could actually serve users. But in some cases, cities are restricted because of agreements they've actually signed with the broadband giants. So in some cases, they could directly compete with the private telecoms, probably provide better service at lower
2: cost. But lobbying has played a role there. Yep. Yep. Um, Art writes, the internet is the new, quote, public square to which everyone in our country needs access. And so it should be as public and accessible as possible. It got privatized during the Clinton administration. And we, the people need to bring it back into the public sphere. I like Ben's idea of the internet promoting face to face democracy. And uh, Art also has a question, which is, which elected officials and incumbents do you know who are supporting a more publicly controlled and responsive internet? If such elected officials exist? Wow, that's
3: a great question. I'm not sure that they exist yet. (laughs) I have to say that this (laughs) is not. (laughs) That's right. Maybe I could persuade a couple of them. You know, I have to be careful in how I position this because I'm not so inward looking as to suggest that the internet needs to be our number one issue. I mean, there are a number of very urgent political issues. I don't have to tell you and the audience that. I don't expect the internet to be anyone's number one issue. I think my hope for this book is somewhat more modest, which is that every political issue has an internet dimension. Whatever you're organizing around, the internet is interested in you. So the internet we could think of as Ideally, something that organizers, that politicians have to reckon with in the course of their normal activity. And hopefully this book provides some resources for doing so.
2: What do you think right now is the most promising avenue for having a sort of public lane, uh, public option for the various types of layers of the stack that we've been talking about? The pipes, the uh, social media services. Is it is it those community networks, you think? You know, Alexis, that's where I would start just because if
3: I were going to helicopter into anywhere in the United States and knock on someone's door, I can make the case for why a community network is just simply a better option and one that would give them a seat at the table, a voice in how an essential infrastructure functions also comcast is one of the most hated companies in the country people generally despise isps they rate lower than airlines or health insurers if you can believe that so this is possibly a winning political issue and i think if we manage to deprivatize the pipes that can be a base from which we can grow
2: Thanks so much for all these uh, new ideas, Ben. We've been talking about fixing the internet with Ben Tarnoff. His new book is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, which really shows many of the problems that look like they are disconnected may in fact be as a result of one thing, privatization. Tarnoff's founding editor of Logic uh, Magazine about technology. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. So many comments poured in. I hope we got to at least most of them. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio,